Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. On the show today, Max Baucus, the former senator, former U.S. ambassador to China, Libby Cantrell from PIMCO. And we'll talk to BlackRock's head of inflation-linked bond portfolios. But first, Ed Hyman joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. He's the chairman of Evercore ISI. There was sort of a beautiful moment on surveillance television a little while ago. Tom Keene having his Warren Beatty moment. He held up the Evercore ISI note with headlines about the economy, good and bad. A Venn diagram with some on both sides of, uh, of the chart there. Ed Hyman, how's the economy look? When you look at the panoply of data right now about the U.S. economy, what's your sense of how it's doing? I think the economy is doing okay. I have a little different view than most people. Um, I see an economy that is uh, pretty solid. Uh, I look at all the data, you know, like the leading indicator of retail sales, but I also travel around a lot, and I go to different uh, cities, and whether it's Denver mm. or Boulder or Dallas or Boston, uh, Seattle, uh, they're all doing pretty well. It doesn't really smack of secular stagnation. So I, I think the economy uh, is pretty solid. My main mantra has been uh, slow and steady uh, wins the race. And it seems to me that that's still a pretty accurate description of what's going on. We've been growing for seven or eight years, and I think over those years have made a fair amount of progress. We're learning a little bit here about what the White House hopes hopes to advance in its its budget. And one thing that Stephen Mnuchin, the new Treasury Secretary, said uh, last week to Bloomberg News over the weekend to, to Fox News in an interview, uh, is that his uh, his assumption for growth is now 2.4%. So that's less than what candidate Donald Trump said when he was on the campaign trail. Is there a new realism pervading Washington here a little over a month into the new administration? Uh, the air's out, out of the balloon a uh-huh. fair amount. Uh, what uh, looked like a case at the very beginning uh, of this episode uh, has faded quite a, quite a bit, mm. and that's probably a good assessment of it. My forecast is for growth of 2.5% uh, for this year, which it doesn't sound like a lot, but it's frankly a fairly heroic number because we haven't had 2.5% growth. I'm also assuming an inflation something like one5 or 2%. Uh, so you're starting to get nominal growth uh, up uh, over 4%, which is a, a key uh, level to get. And you mentioned your, your growth is something there, 2.5%. What are the driving factors? Uh, there was so much enthusiasm, it seemed, in the market for a big infrastructure spending package after the elections. You said the air has maybe begun to dissipate from that, that balloon in Washington, yeah, well, D.C. What's going to be the driver there, do you think? Okay, well, I didn't have uh, a big hopes that because they're talking about a trillion dollars over a decade. Uh, so that's, that's not enough to fix the yeah. potholes, uh, you know, $100 billion a year. Uh, but the economy is uh, slowly becoming uh, self-sustaining with employment gains, leading to retail sales. Uh, house prices are up something like 7%. Right. Stock market's up. So you're getting a, a broadening out of growth uh, in the U.S. What you invented at C.J. Lawrence, and I think of Chairman Greenspan as well, is looking at tangible, real economic data, 
like what trucks are doing, what railroads are doing, what capital goods is doing. Within the ISI report that you create every day, what's the one metric that gets you to some enthusiasm about a better nominal GDP? Well, we uh, we survey about two or 300 companies a week. Uh, and so I have a very, I have almost a perfect knowledge of how the economy is doing currently. Mm. They're not forecasting, though. They're not predictive. And those have edged up a little bit consistent with a little over 2% uh, real GDP growth and probably something like 4% nominal GDP growth. But, uh, Thomas, you and I discussed uh, a minute or so ago, what's driving the economy today is not what drove it 40 years ago. Today, it's sports and entertainment. It's uh, new tech, you know, like a Facebook or a Snap. Uh, it's e- e-commerce. And then it's healthcare and higher education. Okay. Other, it's amazing. Of, of those things that you mentioned, the only ones that are going to employ bodies, warm American bodies, is healthcare and maybe education. Where are the jobs going to come from? Where is, how are we going to get the people employed that voted for Senator Sanders and that voted for Mr. Trump? Yeah. The uh, well, yeah, we've, as you well know, because you're such a, a student of this stuff. Uh-huh. Tom, we've had employment gains, you know, pretty steady, around 150, yeah. 200,000 for years now. Uh, well, Stan and, Fisher says we're fully employed, and Danny Blanchflower up at Dartmouth says no, we're not. Yeah. So it's a debate, and the and the uh, coach or the referee on that will be what happens to wages. And so far, wages have disappointed me. I thought they'd be yeah. over 3% by now, and, and they're not. But the, the, when you get to full employment, you'll know it because you see wages accelerate. You know, I, when the Fed makes its decision here, March, whether or not to, to raise rates, is that is that the big X factor here? Are, is are wages the big factor that they're going to be weighing? I think so. Yeah. Uh, so I'm I'm uh, sort of in the hole here because I've been expecting wages to pick up uh, for some time. They were one eight, and now they're like two and a half percent. So they have picked up, but not as much as I thought. The January number, uh, which set the market back a lot, uh, was only point one. Uh, and when I look back at history. Uh, it suggests that the February number will be 0.4. Now, if if it is, uh, then that will put the the next meeting uh, squarely yeah. on track. Within this is the idea of okay, we get rising wages, and I'm getting a lot of mail from listeners on this. We get rising rising wages, but we also get inflation with it. So my real wage, my inflation adjusted wage, is flat or diminished. Is that a tangible risk? Inflation um, getting in the way of the good you're talking about. Um, I, I don't think so at the moment because uh, pricing power is so difficult to come by, uh, particularly in the old economy, like we talked about Target this morning. Yeah. There's no pricing power there. Autos, when clothing. When the last time you shopped at Target? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, when was the last time I shopped? There you go. There you go. Fair, Thank fair you. I, I asked a question fair for you, Mr. Still. Tucker. There you go. <laughs> Continue, David. And let me ask you about sentiment and optimism. We talked to Bill Dunkelberg every time the uh, NFIB survey of small businesses come out. Optimism seems very high. How much currency should we give that uh, at this point in time? In other words, we see we see optimism about growth and hiring and spending money on CapEx. Uh, what from there? In other words, we see that optimism. What does that lead to? Well, uh, one of the things I do, I think, is to connect the dots. Yeah. And uh, consumer confidence has also moved up. And unlike the, or say in addition to uh, dunks, as is affectionately called, yes. uh, NFIB, a survey which has uh, skyrocketed, uh, the conference board uh, does a survey of employment expectations by consumers. 
and that has a similar hockey stick look to it. Uh, so I got three different uh, measures of confidence, and they've all moved up a fair amount. As I mentioned, uh, animal spirits is one of the ways that uh, you know Trumponomics can can work through the economy that you know precedes uh, getting any fiscal stimulus working. We uh, we talked to our colleague Michael McKee. He was down in Mexico City talking with the economic minister there. Uh, and something he said in that interview is the moment that in those negotiations with the U.S., should they happen over uh, import tariffs, uh, that they mentioned a 20 percent tariff on cars. In his words, he said, uh, we say bye-bye. Where do you see things going from here? What's the weight of this new protectionism going to be on the U.S. economy? So I don't – my own personal view is that it's more bark than bite, uh, but I'll watch it every day uh, to see if the – uh, the bite starts to happen, uh, but my my guess is that Trump is trying to mm. uh, to redo trade deals that are more advantageous for the U.S. in his opinion, uh, as opposed to tear up NAFTA or tear up WTO. Mm. But it's it's not clear, is it? Uh, as yeah. we sit here right now. One final question to get you started on your day, Ed Hyman. Professor Summers talks about secular stagnation. Uh, do you agree with Larry Summers that it's pretty moldy out there and that we need a real jump start of policy? Boy, I don't. Hmm. Uh, so I think I think uh, uh, Larry Summers, who I, I think is terrific, and as I you mentioned public service uh, earlier, yeah. he's really given and it continues to give. But he lives in Boston. Boston is booming. You walk hmm. out and it's just booming. It has all the things I mentioned. And then he spends a lot of time in Washington, D.C. And Washington, D.C. is strong, too. Still standing. Still standing is an <laughs> understatement. <laughs> so I think I think the U.S. economy mm. is is you know slow and steady, and it's like managing money. If you can avoid to yeah. to lose money, uh, you can actually right. make some real progress. Thank you so much for coming by today, and particularly answering our questions on the future of the Fed and Kevin Warsh and, and all that. Greatly appreciate it. Edward Hyman is with Evercore ISI. David, I think it would be safe. I showed at the beginning of television um, yeah. the secret Ed Hyman memo. The yeah, I good mentioned news, that. Right. The bad news. <laughs> and everything in between. And the, famous, the, the famous, yeah, really, the red envelope. <laughs> That's what they should have done. They should have had Ed Hyman be in charge of the envelopes at the Oscar. That would have fixed things. Ed Hyman with Evercore ISI. David, bring in our next guest. All I know is the newspapers in Bloomberg are Trump, 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 <laughs> Trump, Trump, Trump. And our esteemed next guest doesn't agree with that. She believes the House has a little bit, the Republicans have a little bit to do with it. Okay. <laughs> Livy Cantrell joins us now. She's executive vice president and head of public policy at PIMCO here with us in our 1130 studios uh, in New York. Let's start with the budget. Uh, we're beginning to get some contours of what that's going to look like. The White House budget's going to look like. We have this $54 billion figure when it comes to defense spending, increase in defense spending. Help us understand what we should make of that. We haven't had regular order. We haven't had uh, reconciliation uttered on Capitol Hill for many years now. Um, are things changing? Are you optimistic that we're going to see a normal budget process here? And what should we make of this document that's going to be released by the White House here, presumably in these next few days? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I mean, I think that just from a, as a starting point, everyone sort of needs to qualify kind of what the president's budget is. I mean, it's much more of a political document than it is um, in terms of actually having sort of the the um, force of law. So it has to go through the normal kind of congressional machinations. It's really the, the Congress that actually sets the budget and then also um, does the implementing, like, the implementing bills mm. like the appropriations bills. So 
what this is, though, and what it should sort of be viewed as is where Donald Trump's priorities are. So we knew that he was going to be supportive of defense spending. I think some people didn't know how much he was going to be you know, supportive of that. Um, so this is, I think, sort of a, um, a living testament to that. But again, it should be caveated that this does not have the force of law. This has to go through the congressional machinations and actually in order to get enacted. Yesterday at the White House, the president sat down with the House Speaker, Paul Ryan, and the, the Senate Majority Leader as well, presumably they talked about the budget, talked about this uh, speech that the president's going to deliver uh, tonight. What's your sense of the relationship there between the White House uh, and Congress? Tom mentions the, uh, the the disarray even among the House. Uh, you know, what, what's your sense of how well the, the, the machine is operating in Washington right now? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because I think, you know, certainly – what markets will be looking at for the speech tonight will be some specifics around President Trump's pro-growth agenda, which we never tax get reform in these and infrastructure, speeches, right? Exactly. But I also think that congressional Republicans want those specifics mm. because while sort of campaign slogans and sort of generalities and platitudes are certainly helpful, um, at this point <clears throat> the rubber really needs to right. to meet the road. And Congress has set out on an incredibly ambitious legislative agenda. They need the president okay, to provide that. some direction. Tell us about the power metric right now. I mean, we're, we're going to see all these. It's like the Oscars. There's going to be all these egos in the room, all focused on the president. I get. Mm-hmm. What is the power of the Republican leadership? What is the power of the chairman and chairwoman? What are the power of the Tea Party and the run-of-the-mill conservative austere Republicans? Give us that power template right now. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a good question because I think if you just simply look at the fact that Republicans have majorities in the House and the Senate and they dominate the White House, you would sort of think, okay, well, this they're going to be it's going to be very easy for them to enact the, their agenda. But within the Republicans, there's quite a number. There's quite a lot of divide. There's a divide between the House and the Senate, say on tax reform. Mm-hmm. The House supports this border adjustment tax. Some of the Republican senators have come out against it. Um, there, within House Republicans, there's some divide. Right? There's the sort of the deficit hawks, or the people who actually want to see some increase in spending, especially on defense. So there is not. A co- this is not a cohesive Republican Party necessarily. I think they can be brought together. And President Trump really, I think, has an opportunity to do that tonight. It's just a question of whether he's actually going to be able to do that or not. If I'm your client, I want to know what we're talking about when we talk about a tax reform, with apologies to Raymond Carver there. But you, you, you get the Paul Ryan Brady plan. You have Gary Cohn working mm-hmm. on a tax plan of his own. How do I make sense of what's most likely to be uh, the, the blueprint for tax reform in Washington right now. Yeah, Do you have a sense of what it is? This is the it's plan. a great question. And honestly, this is the number one question that we're getting from our clients is what will tax reform look like? You know, I think the conventional wisdom was right after the election that since Speaker Ryan had done so much work on tax reform as the head of Ways and Means um, in, in House leadership, that, that President Trump would be more inclined just to defer to him and that the Senate would likely to d- defer to him as well. I think that plan has been upended, um, partly because of this border adjustment tax, which is at the center of um, the House tax reform plan. We think that it is unlikely that at the end of the day that stays in. And because it's a big revenue raiser and it allows the corporate tax rate to be cut even more, um, you'll probably see a smaller plan and it'll probably take longer than what the market anticipates. I believe it's $54 billion is a delta on defense (laughs) spending. How much does a border tax bring in? 
Have you seen a good number? Yes. Yeah, so on that? the Tax Foundation has it scored at one point one trillion over ten years. The Tax Policy Center has it about one trillion. So it is a huge revenue raiser. So yeah. without that, by definition, um, it's a tax reform. I believe, be like what Tip O'Neill would say, is okay. What's the number? Twenty percent? Ten percent? What's what's a border tax proposed? Uh, the twenty percent. So what if we see a two percent or a four percent border tax? Yeah, you know, and you might see some some sort of iteration around that. You also, what I think is actually even more likely if it is included, is that you would see a very long phase-in time. Yeah, so fair. it would be at the 20% rate, but it would be so, phase-in. And maybe something like commodities okay, are carved out. Okay, i got 20 out. seconds left, and it's not about the Denver Broncos. Are we <laughs> going back to 1976, 1978, where there's actually this strange thing called legislation? Are we actually going to see that? I think that as more time goes by and as more time that goes by that President Trump doesn't endorse a specific plan, I mm-hmm. think it becomes increasingly harder to enact okay. tax reform did, as we get closer to the midterms. John Tucker, did you see how I said 1976 and 1978 and Libby Cantrell equated <laughs> that with Jefferson what? and Madison? <laughs> <laughs> I, I wasn't actually born yet. I'm so. just <laughs> killing it here. I'm just think, Oh, go oh, away. Libby Cantrell with PIMCO. Thank you Thank so you. much. I think. (laughs) This is Bloomberg. (laughs) Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. trying to do here today within the quiet markets is really recalibrate into a new month, the last month of the uh, first quarter. I believe that begins tomorrow. Today mm-hmm. is two, two. There's no leap year this year. No. Right? Yeah. It's the last okay. day. Last day of the month. Martin Haggerty with us with BlackRock. And what's great about him is he synthesizes in the fixed income that, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> gas that Kate Moore and Jeff Rosenberg do and everyone else. But Martin Haggerty filters in the inflation dynamics as described by uh, the fixed income market. He joins us now. Martin, what does like the five-year, five-year forward tell you right now, that inside baseball idea of looking out five years at the view out five years from there? Well, Tom, I think it's worthwhile looking at that from two aspects. Basically, what is it telling us now and what was it telling us roughly a, a year ago? Um, Right now, it's telling us that headline CPI, as priced by the U.S. tips market, is priced to be in the vicinity of 2% between 2022 and 2027. Now, if we compare that to the Fed's inflation target, the Fed has an inflation target that is driven by PCE inflation. Yeah. And that is a slightly different metric that tends to run about 30 to 40 basis points below CPI. So we're basically pricing in a run rate of PCE inflation into the future of about 1.6 to 1.7%, which implies that despite the significant improvement in that metric that we've seen over the last 12 months, that the Fed is still never going to hit its inflation target in that time period that I specified. I mean, mean, this folds right into Fed policy, and the ancient thing that all of our uh, listeners know is simply a fear of inflation. Do you wake up in the morning at BlackRock with a fear of inflation? (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, I, I was uh, born and brought up in Zimbabwe, so that's somewhat yeah. genetic for me. Yeah, that's true. I guess it's, it's yeah, I'll say. But I mean, I mean, is but, there a fear? I mean, we get this, David and I get this in the mail we receive. We're going to have runaway inflation, yeah. 60s inflation, oh my, OMG, 4% inflation, 8% nominal GDP, and yet none of the evidence shows that, does it? No, and, and I think, you know, a lot of the, the views in that regard have been misfounded. And I particularly recall to the immediate aftermath of the crisis where any sort of pundit you had on, on, on various platforms was, was talking about a, a Zimbabwe-style inflation with the Fed expanding the balance sheet and uh, QE operation twist and the various iterations of policy that we had. And I think that that was completely unfounded and, and continues to be so. But when we look at the macro backdrop, the economy continues to heal in the aftermath. And I, I do think there are some disinflationary impacts from technology that are obviously pushing some, uh, some components of CPI down, as well as some of the international factors uh, with respect to globalization. But if, if we sort of mark to market where we are today and, and look at core CPI at 2.3, do I see runaway inflation? Does that number get up to 4 or 5%? I don't think so. I, I can see that the labor market in the U.S. continues to improve. We're at levels of unemployment consistent with Nehru. Um, we have had a tremendous amount of stability in the currency markets more recently. Right. Uh, on the back of significant dollar strength we saw from 2014 into 2016, that is allowing some of the uh, internationally set drivers of disinflation that we have seen uh, start to stabilize. And I, I'm of the opinion that core CPI, as long as the U.S. labor market continues to improve um, and, and stay at a relatively healthy run rate in line or, or below Nehru, then we're in a, in a path where core CPI by the end of 2018 is probably going to be somewhere in the vicinity of 2.7%. All right. So Tom asks if wow. the Zimbabwe-born Martin Hegarty is worried about inflation. How about uh, Fed Chair Janet Yellen? Is this something that she is still concerned about, or is the focus shifted almost entirely at the Fed here to, to the labor market? Well, I, I think it's it's <laughs> one can never quite pin down what the focus yep. at the Fed currently is. Um, but if you look at the two pillars of their mandate, full employment and price stability, um, one could argue that we're at full employment and one could argue that we're at or very close to price stability. So it appears that the Fed is looking at a host of, of other metrics as well. And when you look at the real policy path priced into the front end of rate markets, i.e. where are Fed funds priced to be less inflation, you still have real policy rates that are negative out to 2018. And I would argue that that, that is not necessarily consistent with an economy at full employment and, and basically at price stability. So, you know, trying to, to sort of reference that back to the question you asked, mm. um, you know, what we have seen in the aftermath of the of the Trump election, we've, we've seen sort of economic surprise data indices move sharply to the high side. But when we break down those, those economic data surprises, a, a lot of the strength seems to be coming from survey-based measures. So we have not yet seen that translate into hard uh, macroeconomic data, apart from the, the, uh, the labor market and the pricing uh, components that, that I mentioned. So perhaps the Fed are being a little more patient mm -hmm. and waiting to see if the improved 
psychology prevalent in a lot of these survey-based measures actually begins to show up into the hard data. Martin, you mentioned Fed funds futures. I've got WIRP go up here on the Bloomberg now looking at the probability of a hike at that March meeting now at 50%. We saw it move yesterday. Help an amateur like me here. How predictive uh, is WIRP? What, what, what credence do you give to it? Well, I think that stems back to the Fed's reaction function, where we know that this Fed is not or has not been uh, one to surprise markets. So the greater the probability that that March uh, pricing of a March hike uh, goes, i.e., the, the, if, it, if it continues to venture north of, of 50%, I think the March becomes more and more into play. And actually, I, I have been perplexed why March has been priced at such a low probability given the, the data evolution I, that I alluded to. Okay, I, I get that. And I, I, I take great note of your 2.7% core uh, uh, inflation rate out a bit, and that's quite a lift. What we're waiting for, I would suggest respectfully, sir, what you're waiting for, and more importantly, what Chair Yellen's waiting for, is decent economic growth. Help me here with the horse and the cart. What's the horse and what's the cart for Chair Yellen? Is it wage growth as a horse? Is it just GDP's the horse? Or is it inflation expectations? I, I in, in this odd financial repression that we're in, I'm not sure I know what the horse looks like. I think that is a, a constant pursuit um, where, obviously, the, I think all of them you mentioned, Tom, to tell the truth, are, are very important horses, where you have had the, the healthy labor market data. The average hourly earnings has not necessarily correlated with the improvement in the labor market we've seen. Um, and at the same time, there appears to be uh, a, a, an inherent mismatch between uh, the unemployment rate and GDP growth implying some sort of collapse in productivity. Now, we can talk about obviously the, the mismeasurement of, of GDP and how it may not necessarily be the best, the best measure for, for economic growth today. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of those discussions are, are well entrenched within right. the FOMC. Um, but I, I think that one cannot necessarily hop on, on one data point where if we got a, a, a soft average hourly earnings for January, we need to look at it in, in, a, in a greater context, i.e. Okay. look at other labor market data oh. with respect to wages and reassess um, that sort of three-month run rate and average hourly earnings right. that, that we may see. Well, this is really important. I haven't looked at the AHE chart in a while, folks. I'm going to put it out on Twitter. It's a great Bloomberg chart that shows the pullback that we've seen recently. But nevertheless, I'm going to say making back two-thirds of the way to the lift of average hourly earnings seen in 2007 and 2008. Martin, what a joy to speak to you about our myths, our fictions of inflation. The gap between service sector and goods producing inflation I went back and looked, and the reality is we've seen this before, this great divide between a 3% service sector and a 0 to sub-percent goods. When does that end? That is a, a very, very good question. And, you know, when, when we look at CPI, we look at it in much the same way, and we break down the, the components into high volatility and low volatility. And the low vol components tend to be those service-based measures, um, obviously with a significant contribution from shelter um, that continues to run uh, basically very close to 3%. Now, looking at the goods component or the uh, 
the sort of more international components of CPI, they're driven by, by global demand and supply and, and the value of the dollar. Now, if you go back to basically since 1997, when TIPS were first introduced, and at the time when China was about to enter the, trade, the World Trade Organization, subsequent or from that point on, goods inflation has basically been zero. So on average for, for the prior 20 odd years. And if one can look at the pace of globalization that has occurred, one can, can understand that and rationalize that, where if you were an owner of capital, you were incentivized to go and find cheap labor. And you did that, either going to South America or to Asia. And at the same time, that those parts of the world received a, a tremendous demographic dividend by um, Eastern Europe, you had a couple of, or a hundred odd million workers enter the global labor supply. And in China, you, you had the same dynamic. And I'm of the opinion that we have reached the end of, of that demographic dividend to, per se. And now we have a global labor market that is a lot tighter than it was 20 years ago. Um, so the disinflationary impact from globalization that has been in place I think is on the verge of of going the other way. Martin, you bring now, up. You go ahead, Young. Um, obviously, there are some currency influences that that play a a, a pronounced role on a more short term basis. And as I said in the segment before the break, that the U.S. dollar appreciated meaningfully in in fourteen. Uh, to 2016, obviously having a, a significant disinflationary impact on, on import prices. So if we look at the tra trajectory of the dollar going forward, um, my expectation is unless we get some significant border tax adjustment um, that could potentially move the, the dollar uh, significantly stronger, I, I'm of the opinion that the run rate of goods disinflation or lack of inflation that we have seen in the past couple of years is definitely behind us. You talk about global developments. Let, let's talk in specific about China here and the role it's playing and, and how that's going to affect uh, this market here in, in 2017. Well, China is the second biggest economy in, in the world um, uh, outside of, of the U.S. And, and ultimately the largest consumer of, of commodities. And the market is, is paying very close attention to Chinese PPI and the developments that ensue from that. We're looking more at subcomponents of that, uh, consumer goods prices within PPI to try and extract the, the, uh, the significant influence of commodities. But they are obviously central to the global reflationary theme. And I think from a couple of perspectives, obviously, we can look at the macroeconomic uh, variables and, and, and analyze them. However, I think the role of global reserve managers, uh, in particular China, have had a significant impact on asset prices globally over the last, uh, in fact, going back to over the last 15 to 20 years, where we've seen reserves accumulate meaningfully and then be drawn down in the last 24 months. And that drawdown of reserves, I think, had significant implications for global asset prices, particularly in Q1 of 2016, where as reserve pressure began to accumulate due to uncertainty regarding Chinese FX policy, they were in, or they, they basically were forced to liquidate assets that, that they held in an attempt to stem currency outflows. And that had 
as Tom said earlier, we live in a very uh, in a world uh, very sensitive to financial conditions, and ultimately right. that in- instability had had a, a significant impact on on global financial conditions. Well, fascinating. Mm-hmm. Never have you had enough of the inflation dynamics and the myths that are out there. Martin Agati is with uh, BlackRock. Your discussion today on inflation dynamics. In this hour, the senator, and if you're from Montana, there's a, trust me, there's only one senator. I think they have two based on civics. We'll go to President Trump for a civics lesson on that. But Max Baucus uh, with us here. We hope to have a great conversation. Of course, recently a minted ambassador to China. Uh, he's now uh, looking for a job in New York City. No one knows what he's going <laughs> to got one here? You got one here? <laughs> uh, we'll get to the senator in a moment. David Gura, an exciting day. You've got an important duty tonight at 9 p.m. Yes, we'll be, uh, we'll be helming the coverage here on Bloomberg Tele- Television and Bloomberg Radio of that speech tonight before a joint session of Congress kicking off at 9 o'clock uh, Eastern time. And we will go through the address, have some analysis afterward, and carry the Democratic response as, as well. So right. I think we'll be here till 11 wanna, is the plan. Can I go 32 miles south of Missoula? Can we do that? Down go to Bitterroot yeah. Mountains there? Lifeline artisanal butter. Tonight's discussion is about guns and butter. And Senator Baucus knows in Montana, if you want Good butter. You go to Lifeline Farm Creamery, Scenic Victor, Montana. You do best. that, David. That's great. It's, it's great stuff. And it's what, you know, it's a story here. We're all New York, New York. Our vision center is about six blocks from Lexington and 59th Street. We're not very good at it, but it's wonderful to have you here today. And well, thank you. it's about the effect of all that we talk about, David, every day yeah. on Montana, among you, other places. You've, uh, you've sat through a few of these speeches right. before, and there's some expectation among our, our audience in particular that we're going right. to get more detail here uh, out of the speech than we have in the past. Are you at all optimistic we're going to get that? Or is, is a State of the Union, is a joint uh, a speech before a joint session of Congress often just focused on soaring rhetoric and that's it? Well, it's a circus. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be a greater circus tonight. Um, you know, new president, new Congress, um, and Donald Trump was very controversial, and um, Republicans are going to be shouting, jumping up and down. Um, Democrats are going to be sitting on their hands. I was going to ask you how you think Democrats will respond to this. I mean, um, I, it's some Republicans as well. I mean, it's a it's a crowd that is of mixed minds. I think mixed mind you can see half jumping up and half not jumping mm-hmm. up. And the big question for me is what Trump says. But the second question is how will well how will Able will he be to uh, resist the uh, the Republicans shouting and screaming? That is, will he say something that's not on the teleprompter because he's just reacting to what's going on to the circus? You know, on the campaign trail, we heard from him, we heard from others that he was going to be different if he were elected, that he was going to carry himself differently, he was going to act differently. We've now seen him in a variety of, uh, of settings as president. Uh, I detected most notably when he does a joint press conference with a world leader, uh, the, the tenor of that press conference seems to be different than when he does it alone uh, in the Eastern with, with reporters. Does, does speaking before Congress in this way have an effect on the speaker, to see all of those folks there gathered, to, to have the import of the, the moment itself? Well, he's not going to the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Right. <laughs> he's, he's got a captive audience there. He may even hold up his, 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 his iPhone and, and tweet something during the middle of it. Who knows? But um, it is a captive audience, and um, it's, it's all sort of, and we'll see. What's, 
Go ahead, Tom. Well, Senator, you, you come out of Stanford in economics and law, and we think of the passing of Kenneth Arrow here, the giant of mm. Stanford economics uh, at 95 here in the last week. We need to get back to core principles. We've all been distracted, either Republicans or Democrats. We've been distracted, uh, to say the least. How do we get back on track? What is the thing you're watching in the cacophony of Washington that will signal an administration that's getting on track to dispose and to make legislation? What, what's the process that we're going to go through? I think that town meetings are part of it. I, I think that the uh, outrage that people are expressing at a lot of yeah. these meetings around the country are, 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 are sobering. Did you ever time. face that anger in your I faced service? anger. I faced a lot of questions, but nothing quite like that. Mm-hmm. When, when you were so uh, instrumental, integrally involved with, with crafting uh, financial reform, with uh, the Affordable Care Act as well. What do you make of what's happening right now as you listen to tonight's speech, as you listen to what's coming out of Washington? How optimistic are you here that those two pieces of legislation are going to be uh, preserved, at least in, in good part? Uh, and how difficult an undertaking is it to tweak those two pieces of legislation? Well, I care. I worry a bit about our country, frankly. Um, in my last job over in China, I've, I'm watching the Chinese think they can get an advantage over the United States um, by seeing Washington protectionist, inward, dysfunctional. And um, it, it gives them, China, a bit of an advantage, frankly. That's so I, I, I very much hope that we in America can start showing that we're, we're adults. We can take care of our destiny. Um, we uh, want to make sure that people do have adequate health care at a reasonable price. We want to make sure the tax code is fair and efficient. And it means we're just going to have to sit down and, and, and really work together. There really is no other approach um, to all of this. And I'm, I'm hoping that, that President Trump tonight indicates that, he, that he's turned the corner a bit, turned the page a bit. He says he's listened to lots of people, business groups, et cetera. And, and certainly he reads about the town meetings. And I, I hope that he starts to signal um, that um, he wants to work with, with the rest of us. I, I, I... I'm making jokes about Victor Montana and artisanal butter. You started in the politics racket out of Missoula, Montana. I did. 45 years ago. Right. Would you please explain to our global audience <laughs> and our national audience how a guy that lives on Fifth Avenue at 56 is supposed to represent the sprawl of agricultural rural Midwest America? I mean, you're one of the voices, you and Grassley of Iowa, that that can answer that question. How did we get to this point where a plutocrat is representing the Montana ethos? I just don't buy it for a minute. Well, he is the president. He did get elected, irrespective of where he lives or where he grew up, he is the president. And um, it's, you know, 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 we are in charge. By that I mean the people are the employers. People still are in charge, and members of Congress and the president really are the employees. And it means we, the people, as has had at town meetings, have to stand up more and make it very clear what we want. How should the Democrats respond tonight? Senator Schumer, Speaker Pelosi, there, there, there has to be a method to their madness tonight. Should they do it with grace, or would you suggest they do protest? Uh, they've got to be firm. Very firm. Can't roll over and play dead about all this. I, I, I would err, err a little on the side of protest. Um, it, 
Democrats have to show to people in the country, especially Democrats, that they care. Chuck Schumer has to show to Democrats around the country that he cares, the Bernie Sanders bunch and so forth. Then after a while, we, we Democrats have to come up, I would hope, with an alternative that's solid and, and shop that around the, the country. It's going to be difficult, but that's what I think we should do. I'm reminded of a, a piece that was in The New Yorker, I think, in 2010. George Packer, the great staff writer, goes down to Washington to cover the Senate and stays there for a couple of months, and the advice he gets going into it is you've got to cover this like a foreign capital. Uh, it's such a strange place. You brought up dysfunction. This has been an institution, a place that's been dysfunctional for a long while. I imagine on some of those 15-hour flights to Beijing, you had some time to think about the state of the Senate today. What's caused it to be as messy, as divisive, as dysfunctional as it is right now, and, and what's the hope for getting out of that? Sometimes I think it has to get worse before it gets better. <laughs> Um, and, and it can. You think it, it can, can still. And, and, but if it gets worse, it assumes we can bounce back up. Um, I think it can get worse. I hope that's not where we head. I hope that doesn't happen. But uh, we've, Americans have to get realize in a sober way, hey, we can't keep going on like this. We can't keep fighting each other. We just can't be locked in our little worlds as much as we have. We gotta, Democracy, I guess it is tough after all. I guess it does take some responsibility after all. And if it gets bad enough, then I think people are going to start to sober up. Is it a problem with collegiality uh, in the body? Is it a problem with some of the rules? We heard about the, the nuclear option, all of this stuff. Is, is, is that what's led to it, or is it something greater? I guess greater. No question. You know, the rules are the rules. It's the old thing in life. You know, sometimes people talk about float charts and box stuff. I think that's all irrelevant. It's the people. It's the people who really make the decisions. When I, we're going to have you back for another block here, Senator. Uh, if, if we could, what should Senator Schumer's approach be to galvanize a minority protest? You're going to be a minority. Do you go out and try to find Republicans that have had it? Do you just try to get to the midterm elections? What does a minority do? You've faced this before. Chuck, um, far be it for me to give advice to Chuck. He's such a character. He's quite a guy. But I would, I, my advice would be, uh, it's, it's the old thing, be very, stand up for... Uh, People, people don't want to be disenfranchised. They don't want to have bad health care. They want to be respected. Stand up for people mm -hmm. and, and and show they really care about oh. people. That he has to he has to convey that in a, in a, in a measured way. David Gurr and Tom Keene, of course, Mr. Gurr, heavily involved in our coverage of the Trump speech tonight, the president's speech at 9 p.m. We have the great honor of speaking with a senator from Montana, uh, Mr. Baucus. Uh, and, of course, the former ambassador to China. David, why don't you pick it up? Because you're a lot more informed on <laughs> Washington than I am. A few months back, I was in Beijing, staying at that west and overlooking the massive uh, U.S. embassy complex there that you're very familiar with, uh, of course. And I uh, was struck by the size of it. wonder how it fits into the whole uh, apparatus uh, in China. You've got your successor headed there now, Terry Branstad, uh, to be the new ambassador to, to China. What advice do you give him about carrying the flag over there, talking with government officials, making the, the, the case for... Um, American economic greatness in, in, in concert with the, with the Chinese economy. Well, I flew to Des Moines about a month ago to see Terry to give him advice. And um, my basic point to him was you just got to show very, very strongly how much you care about this relationship. And you just got to work very hard to, to get access and talk to people and explain that you are caring and you want to make sure this relationship works. What um, We've asked a number of, of guests who have a lot of State Department experience. Who drives this relationship? Is it driven out of the State Department uh, in D.C.? Is it driven out of the Treasury Department? I was in Beijing for the Strategic and, and Economic Dialogue mm -hmm. and sort of saw that firsthand. 
what person or what persons within the government drive this relationship? Is it the ambassador to, to China? Well, it's, it's, there are a lot of players. The ambassador certainly is one, and it's, it really sets the tone. And the ambassador is the highest-ranking American official um, in, the, in, 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 the, in the host country. But obviously the White House, State Department, um, Defense Department, they're all part of this. It's, it's somewhat coordinated out of the White House with the National Security okay. Council. But a lot of these other agencies, they've got their own agenda. Yeah. They're pushing hard. So it's, it's, it's my job back there is trying to keep everybody working together and on the same page. My, my perspective the other day was to hearken back to Mike Mansfield and what he did with our relationship with Japan at a crucial time, or even Tom Foley, I believe, was over there on the watch at one point. We have a president who doesn't have that vision. Whether the president's right or wrong is not the issue. We have a zero-sum neo-mercantilist inward tone that we'll hear in that speech tonight, make America, make Montana great again. I get all that. How do we get back to what Mike Mansfield represented and what you represented with your service? How do we get there? Well, first, you need a president. You need a president who has those points of view, who um, looks at the world uh, the way Mike Mansfield did and, and uh, Tom Foley did and so forth. That's number one. Number two, um, you know, I did my very best to explain to the Chinese how important this relationship is and I, all the things I'm doing, um, things they should do, China should do, to show that we really want to work together. That's um, My view, frankly, is that it's the old rising power and, and um, established power question, mm-hmm. so-called Thucydides trap. And, and I say this over and over again to the Chinese, you got to show it to us, not just tell us, but show yeah. it to us you want to work with us. David, again, you're more informed on this. Advise us, and David, jump in here with a better question than me on what we should look for from the Senate Intelligence Community with this uproar over Russia. David, fra- rephrase that. Yeah, we, we, we hear about these investigations. We hear calls for an independent investigation. You've experienced with, with that as well. I mean, how important is that, do you think, to have an independent uh, investigation into what we saw during the, the election and, and uh, indeed afterward? We need whatever it takes to get the facts. Um, if it requires an independent prosecutor, then so be it. On the other hand, if um, the Trump administration wants to reveal everything that happened, telephone records and so forth, logs and so forth, that's fine too. But we just need to get the facts, and it's got to pass the smell test. With the U.S.-China relationship, there has been so much focus on the national security side of things. Help us with the balance here. Uh, national security on the one hand, economic on the other. I think back to the Trans-Pacific Partnership now, uh, dead in the water, at least from a U.S. perspective. A lot of the argument that Ambassador Mike Froman made was about the security reasons for doing it and giving power to the Chinese. They would have more power if this, if this fell apart. Did we focus too little on the economic side of things and too much on national security when it came to trade in particular? I think failure to pass TPP is a major mistake. It's We are hurting ourselves uh, big time um, from a security perspective and also from a geopolitical perspective. Um, and frankly, uh, from a trade perspective too, it, it, it creates more jobs than it, than it loses jobs. And um, it's it, it, I wish there were some way to go back and resurrect and mm. bring back TPP. I don't care. It's, it's, maybe Trump could bring it back a little right. bit and, and call it Trump PP. I don't care. <laughs> as long as we, at least we've got to find some way to get the thing passed. Senator, what <laughs> did the Democratic Party need to do to get Trump supporters in your Montana back into the fold? They lost Michigan. They lost Wisconsin, et cetera. How does the Democratic Party, the coastal progressives, how do they re-engage with the Max Baucus, Scoop Jackson Democrats of another time and place? 
Well, I can only say what I did, which is to just have tons of town meetings. I gave my personal telephone number to everybody. I gave my personal private email to everybody in Montana. And I, it, it, it got to meet people, retail talk to people. Politics. Reach, reach, yeah. Retail politics. Mm-hmm. And, and with respect, you listen. You listen. Mm-hmm. And you listen to their assumptions, with really their worries, their mm-hmm. fears. And you show that you're really trying to find some, some common cause to solve it. Well, very good. Uh, thank you so much for attending today. We'd love to see you in our Washington <laughs> yes, studios back, yeah. or here. Do we have Montana studios? We need to get them. I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> volunteer to, to open up the. Uh, I'll open it up. <laughs> we'll, we'll get you, David. We'll get you. David's from Brooklyn, uh, Senator. Oh, it's all artisanal. That's right. Yeah. Well, you know, Mike Mansfield was from Brooklyn. There you go. Oh, okay. I did not know. That. <laughs> yes. Fonta Wisdom. Yeah. <laughs> Senator, thank you so much. Look, look, at, look at your career here, David. Yeah. Yeah. The senator will I be like listening, that. no doubt, tonight at 9 p.m. to the president. And we'll have coverage. David Gurr. On Bloomberg Television, Bloomberg Radio Worldwide at 9 p.m. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of Global Connections, Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated Member, SIPC.